I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm joined down the line by my wonderful colleague Ben. Hello Ben. Hello Agnes. How are things? Okay, how are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. It feels like the end of term, weirdly. After centenary week, it feels like everybody's taken a big kind of sigh and is looking forward to the beach, although for many of us the beach is not going to be attainable. This <laughs> mentally I think people are there <laughs> yeah and speaking of end of term this is the last podcast of the season for a bit isn't it we're gonna it um we're gonna have a month off and then we're gonna come back towards the end of August beginning of September with a new series of undercurrents for you all but Ben what happened this week this week Agnes I spoke to three researchers who were all based in Australia, who all recently contributed to an issue of the journal International Affairs. And we were talking about the power that images have in politics and the role that images play. And we had, it's as you'll hear, it's like a very wide ranging discussion. There's a lot of different aspects to it. We cover everything from horror movies to social media to the way that news media uses imagery in their stories and how that helps to create an understanding of a certain problem and how all of these things contribute to how policymakers think about particular political issues particularly in terms of conflict interesting so quite a, quite a broad wide-ranging discussion by the sounds of things it was and i mean they're all such fascinating people and such and they do such fascinating work and i kind of felt like i needed to get out of the way as much as possible and just kind of let them <laughs> talk together because they're <laughs> because they're all on the same page but it was it was amazing to be able to to talk about something just completely different but which as you'll hear just has such an impact on on the way that all of us, I guess, kind of think about it. And I think that one of the interesting things for me is that I think it, it reminds you that policymakers are human, you know, like they respond to things in the same way we respond to things. So the images that we've been seeing with all these Black Lives Matter demonstrations, but also earlier than that with the refugee crisis, which we touch on in the conversation, those have really deep emotional effects on the people that see those images, right? And that applies no less to politicians. And so thinking about the impact that that has was, yeah, it was super interesting. Brilliant. Well, let's have a listen. Okay, so welcome back. It's great to be here for this special episode of Undercurrents. This week, we've got a fantastic international panel discussion lined up for you on the political power of images. So the idea for this episode came from a recent collection of articles published in the Chatham House Journal International Affairs titled Violence, Visuality and World Politics, which was published back in May this year. And I'm delighted that we've got three of the contributors to that issue with us today. So with me, I've got Dr. Helen Behrens, who is a senior lecturer in the heroically titled School of Justice at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Helen edited this collection alongside Dr. Constance Duncan, who is a lecturer in international relations at Monash University. And she's joining us down the line from Melbourne, Australia. 
And Dr. Stephanie Fischel is also with us. Stephanie is a lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of the Sunshine Coast, which sounds wonderfully optimistic, in Queensland, Australia. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. (laughs) So, Helen, I just thought we'd start just with a bit of an overview. So the title, Violence, Visuality and World Politics, this collection of articles all looks at how images function, I guess, in world politics. Could you tell us a bit about why you guys were interested in that as a kind of subject area and the kind of rationale for bringing these articles together? Yeah, absolutely. I think that images are often overlooked when we think and talk about politics, but they're kind of profoundly actually present in the way that we make sense of the world. Um, I think in recent years, we're getting a bit better at paying attention to the role of images in constituting or understanding and engaging in politics, obviously through like the growing visual politics space, interdisciplinary efforts and things. But what I think that the special section does and what Connie and I were trying to do in bringing it together is to particularly pay sustained attention to the links between images and violence and their impacts on policy making. So I think when we were kind of putting it together and talking about it, one of the things that Connie and I discussed was how images often increase the field of view. They allow us to see things or notice things that perhaps we wouldn't notice if we're just focused on text or words. And violence in the world is profoundly visual and violence has this potential to dramatically kind of reshape the way we understand and practice international relations and politics. And I think you know, we only have to think about the complex and long-lasting impacts of 9-11, right, to see the power of visuals and violence rippling out in different ways um, in terms of politics. So I think that kind of as a core of interest in terms of where we started and then pulling together contributors really to think about the really varied and different ways and places that violence and and visuality um, in various ways come together in different ways to impact world politics. So I think that across the various contributions, and we'll talk about some of them in this discussion too, I think what they really highlight is how implicated images are in violence, in contestations of power. I think it really shows how if we pay attention to images, we can see the kind of impact that rapidly changing communication technologies have had on how violence is visually seen and the volume and its reach in the world and the way in which that impacts governments' responses. And finally, I think what a lot of the contributions do really well is their affective power and influence of images so that they're emotionally resonant, that they frame our engagements with the world in particular ways. And so I think through them, what is so delightful as as an editor is to read them together after these kinds of discussions and really see the ways in which those themes come out in different ways through them and the importance of paying attention to images in that context of violence, world politics, policymaking. I mean, this may be an overly broad question or it might be the wrong thing to ask, but I just wondered in general, in, in the pieces that you put together for this section, were you thinking about images as tools that policymakers use? Were you thinking about it from the perspective of people who are choosing to use certain images in certain ways? Or was it more broadly about the reception of these images? Connie, maybe could you tell us a bit about that? I think that's a really good question. And I think one of the things that we, uh, it's important to recognise is that images as tools by policymakers and how they influence policymakers themselves, those 
key points are not mutually exclusive. So you certainly have policymakers who will select or use images that have arisen organically as a result of circumstance. Uh, So we can think of the image of Alan Curdy that Helen actually talks about in her piece and how that image was utilised by key policymakers to frame, you know, certain policies around uh, migration, particularly within the Mediterranean Europe crisis context of humanitarianism. But then also you have images that influence policymakers without them necessarily making a direct statement on that. It's important that it's uh, a lot of work is actually done on this idea of one image. So the, uh, you know, the iconic image, which is, you know, obviously fantastic and certainly has policy implications. Uh, We can think about throughout history, there've been many different iconic images that have had significant impact on foreign policy, on domestic politics. But there's also in, in what we've been thinking about in terms of this particular suite of articles is that the violences of these images are not just connected to one key photograph or one key moment. They pervade our everyday life. So there are images that are that, that shape the way we understand the world, but they're not necessarily iconic. So it's important to understand that policymakers themselves are embedded in a world that is incredibly visual. And so even if they don't necessarily call on a particular image to frame a policy, to persuade people to agree with them, they are nonetheless in some way influenced by the images that they are surrounded by. And this is why, how, you know, it's important to consider how images are circulated as part of acknowledging their power. The other element of that is not only in terms of where policymakers are using or engaging with particular images, but as Connie kind of pointed out, that they are embedded in a world that is visual. And I think some of the papers in particular point to that, those kind of the broader way in which different kinds of visuality influence the way in which we understand the world and different kinds of representations of violence. So I think Steph and Tim's paper on pop culture and the influence of pop culture, and in their case, particularly representations of horror, kind of shape the way we understand those themes when we see them in the world. And other work like by Manny Crone looking at videos made by Islamic State to try and recruit people and the kinds of displays of violence and the way in which people engage in them, right? So how do they become part of people's lives and inform those broader, much more ephemeral kinds of understandings, but that nonetheless are pervasive and really kind of often powerful in those kind of constitutions of then policymaking or engagement in politics or whatever it might be. Let's dive into a, to one of our case studies then, Helen. So your article is titled Politics, Policymaking and the Presence of Images of Suffering Children. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what you were exploring in that article? Yeah, I'm always very interested in my work in the politics of childhood. So I'm interested in how childhood operates as a concept in international politics, how children get deployed strategically in political discourse and not as commonly but interested in when children actually have agency of their own and and engage as political subjects. But in recent work and in this contribution as well, I'm particularly interested in the role of images of children's suffering and how they're politicised. 
and I think that we're all pretty familiar with these kinds of images, right? We, we've seen them. They're part of our imaginary of the world now as well. So the image of Alan Kurdi in 2015 washed up dead on the beach um, and its implications for our understanding of the quote-unquote crisis, right, the situation in the, in the Mediterranean. But there's obviously lots more examples. And actually, as we record this this week, it's been one year since two-year-old Valeria and her 25-year-old father, Oscar, died crossing the Rio Grande from Mexico to the US. So, you know, these images have their moment, but then kind of pervade discourses afterwards. And I think often we think that these kinds of images prompt more humanitarian or more empathetic kind of responses for government. And this is absolutely true sometimes. Canada and Germany increased their refugee intake from Syria after the Kurdi image. But often we don't kind of think about how these images are actually used to reinforce foreign policy positions and perhaps less humanitarian or empathetic kinds of decision-making. So in my paper, I look at an example in particular. It's from Syria in 2017, where a gas attack caused the deaths of over 80 people in a town called Khan Sheikh Khan, excuse my pronunciation. And social media really kind of filled with these images. People took video and photos of as it happened in the aftermath, which involved a lot of people lying on the ground, gasping for air, first responders, you know, hosing people down. And a lot of those images were also of children. And then in the aftermath of it, there were these really powerful set of images that went viral on Twitter first and then more mainstream of a father, Abdul Hamid al-Yusuf, holding his two dead 10-month-old twins who were called Aya and Ahmed. And these images obviously gained circulation around the world. And President Trump, who at the time was newly inaugurated, saw these images and linked them specifically to his condemnation of al-Assad in, in Syria. And in Trump's words, he's like, because even beautiful babies were murdered and that's why it kind of demanded a response. So we launched an airstrike in Syria. And so what I think is really interesting about this is the kind of use of the bodies of these children and their suffering in order to justify a kind of intervention, military intervention in this case, where the response wasn't really about the children anyway. Can I just ask you a follow-up on that example? Because I think from what I can remember of of the reporting around that intervention that that President Trump made, there were questions as to the efficacy of of actually coming in and enacting this kind of airstrike, what I was actually going to achieve beyond some kind of retaliatory statement. So I just wondered, is that also an example of a policymaker trying to engage with the politics of images in the sense that he was trying to create an image in response? He wanted people to disseminate the video of this airstrike and the big explosion that happened and that that would in itself not cancel it out, but that would be a kind of visual response rather than enacting measures that maybe were not so visible, but which might have been more effective. Yes, I think you're I think you're probably you're probably right, right, in terms of how much in some cases these kinds of things are driven, particularly in the case of certain political leaders, are driven by the visible doing of something in a symbolic way that perhaps is not necessarily the best in terms of long term policy, but is good politics, you know, at the time. So I absolutely think that there are some good layers in there in thinking about the kinds of, you know, what kinds of images people are trying to get to circulate, right, and the implications for them. I've wondered as well, 
maybe we should have spoke about this at the at the beginning but what it what it is about images that have so much resonance that maybe text doesn't and i was wondering whether you had a view on whether images have more of an association of being true or factual like i can see this happening in front of my eyes and therefore i can't question whether or not this actually happened is that something that you think is tied up with this as well that adds this kind of extra power to these images I mean, I think it's kind of undeniable, right? Like we all knew thousands of people were dying in the Mediterranean, but somehow we didn't care until we saw Alan Kurdi. We know that refugees and migrants are trying to cross incredibly hostile country and context to get to the US, but we don't care. I mean, this, people do care. There's just not that kind of outcry, right, until there is a, a kind of visual representation of, of the suffering. I think that photo combined with the, the one of the young girl, Yanela Sanchez, in the headlights of the patrol crying for a mother that also went viral in that context. Mm. So I just think that the answer is kind of self-evident to an extent, which doesn't make it not an, not an interesting question to ask. I'd be interested in particularly Steph's thoughts on that and the power of images versus words in, in having a, an affective or emotional kind of response to. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking as you were talking for Tim and I's article, the, the visual piece of it comes in with the point of view. And maybe that's part of what, when you two were talking about the way in which images are digested and taken up, for us, the image itself was a way to stabilize one's point of view. And I think it's similar to what you're saying here and that I think that takes us out of our subject position of we're the stable citizens looking on often without thinking about what ethical encounter that is, but the image itself then or the point of view of it can say, you could see yourself suddenly in that picture being the grieving parent, um, experiencing this in a different way. And I think that's a big piece of why images work is they tend to disrupt our individual experiences of things and allow us to step into the shoes of other people in ways that are important. Could you maybe then tell us a bit about the article that you co-authored with Tim Astrop, which is titled Horror, Apocalypse and World Politics, which is one of my favourite international affairs titles of the year so far. And oh, seems yeah. apt for this time that we're living through. <laughs> And now we we both struggled a bit with having like a, a timely article uh, in the apocalypse and how painful that felt at some level. I mean, part of it was Tim Tim began the project and asked me to come on to it with his interest in knowing that I had other pieces on apocalypse and it also talked about nuclear memory in a previous work I'd done as well. So it was one of those really interesting moments. I can't really tell you how the article ended up the way it did in the sense that we started it with some ideas around using zombie films, as well as the nuclear case studies that we throw in there, the examples. But as we began writing it, and of course, when Connie and Helen came in and the readers that we had giving us feedback, it turned out that moving more toward the way in which pop culture and the horror genre itself could possibly allow us to reflect ethically on violence. That's when we came up with what would become this article. I think one of the important things about it and what got us started thinking about it is IR is often the discipline that's tasked with talking about war and violence and the way we understand war being pushed always to the outside of states and, and understood as a phenomenon that happens between states. And when we talk about it, we generally come from a macro point of view. Right? And I think there's been a lot of shifts in the literature and the way people address violence as something experienced by people differently from how you might look at the causes of war scenario that we might be familiar with teaching or learning when we were in grad school. 
So for us, we wanted to play with the way in which the images and the horror genre could help maybe make clear the ways in which we could respond to violence in a way that kept the experience of that violence at the forefront, rather than the causes of that violence or the way in which diplomacy would code it. I think we, we thought about the Virilio, where he talks about the view from the bomb from underneath is different than the view from above. So in that way, we wanted to play with it. And in, in these extreme violence scenarios, and especially apocalypse, those are often reflections of the kinds of things we fear culturally. And they only make sense within a cultural context and similar to the way an image would, right? If you think about a horror film, say like VHS or Unfriended or one of those, like this wouldn't have been scary to someone pre-Facebook, right? It wouldn't have had the kind of affective register that it does now. So in that way, we thought if we could put these two together to think about how we can think about violence in a more ethical way through the experience of violence itself or how we might experience it from the outside to keep some of the things from happening that Helen was talking about, right? We get the fatigue, you get the images that circulate that don't mean the same thing, they get used for different reasons. And using then the two examples of the nuclear films as a way to, because of the reaction to those films and many people remembering watching them, take that feeling, that feeling of fear, that feeling of terror, and thinking about how that could change the way a policymaker might make a policy position, a policy statement from the position of someone experiencing that rather than from an outside position. Yeah. Could you talk us through those those two examples of, of the nuclear films? Could you tell us for people who haven't seen them? So one of the things we can talk about, we talked about visuals doing something different than, than discourse, right? One of the reasons why we came back to the war game and threads, right? Which were older, older films about nuclear war actually being experienced with people. And in some case, um, Threads itself, it was almost a war of the world moment where people were so frightened when it came on that they thought nuclear war was actually happening. And what that did is we have the wonderful piece by Cohn that we use as well that talks about the way in which language sanitizes the way we talk about nuclear weapons and war. And in this case, the moving back to these viewing the war game and Threads and other kinds of Um, apocalypse stories that we talk about give you a way in which to take those abstract strategic languages, which tend to be very clean, you know, they talk about surgical strikes and such, and to put it in a place where it has a more transgressive power to get people to think about why we might want to push back against nuclear politics, nuclear use in many ways. And that way, I think that shocking content and gripping narratives of those sorts of things are a way to get people to think beyond just what you'd hear from policymakers. And this goes along with Dudney's idea of nuclear reclusion, right? Which I think is an important one that nukes are in a special place because the state doesn't want you to think about them. If you're a believer in the social contract theory, right? You'd say, if they're protecting me in some way and I've given up certain kinds of rights to be protected by the state, suddenly nuclear war takes that off, right? Omnicidal weapons take those kinds of things off the shelf, um, so to speak. So. And that way we can think about that this itself can create moral engagement with a policy that tends to want us to push away from that kind of moral engagement. How did you deal with the desensitization point? Because I mean, I think it's been discussed a lot in the media. You know, you're always reading these stories about the danger that violent video games, for example, are playing on, on how a generation of young people are growing up without any kind of real sense of what it means to kill people or the value of human life is in some way diminished because they're on Fortnite taking each other out. 
did that come into your thinking about the horror genre? Because often from the movies that I've watched, the depictions of violence that you're seeing are quite often not necessarily glorified, but they're kind of hyped. And they're not necessarily realistic representations of violence. One of the reasons we did the aesthetics and I mean, a piece of it was because this was a gathered articles on aesthetics was we wanted to think about there's been a lot of work done in looking at the horror genre and how the point of view works with it. So we kind of simply talked about point of view a minute ago, but the way we talked about the point of view is not only does it destabilize the subject position, but the way horror works is it moves you back and forth between being the one watching and the one getting watched. So in that way, it destabilizes your sense. And a lot of really kind of amazing writers in the last 20 years have talked about how we could say that many of these graphically violent movies would romanticize or make violence against women problematic. But their points are, I mean, Bridget Cherry, who we used, and Clover talk about how we don't actually know how the viewer is viewing it. And what they've found from empirical studies is that, in fact, going back and forth between being the, the murderer makes you complicit in that act of murder in a way that can make you very uncomfortable with it. It's not, you're not getting pleasure from it. You're actually beginning to be part of the story. You're part of the friend's you're part of the group. And when you are switched back into the murderer point of view, suddenly you can feel that shock of like, but wait, like I, I've now started to feel something for these people in this movie. I don't want to be in this position anymore. So it makes you complicit itself in the violence, which I think is a way to shake it up. I mean, one of the things we could all think about is the way in which we're complicit in the world that we live in and that we often can't make any other choices around it. And I think the other important piece to think about, Tim and I went around and around on this because we really wanted to think really carefully about what we thought, the fatigue around looking at violent images and all the problems that we know about this. And I found a really interesting book by Aaron Michael Kerner years ago when I was teaching called Torture Porn in the Wake of 9-11, where he makes a very important point that the cause and effect relationship is between horror films and real world violence aren't really that straightforward. And in fact, aren't straightforward for video games either. There's no good empirical evidence to trace that if you play violent video games, you become violent. And in fact, if you have a teenager, I have a Zoomer myself, and he's very sophisticated. He knows exactly what is real world and what isn't, right? And he often talks with his friends about the skins and the way the games work. So he's quite aware that it's not actual violence. And the link between that is uncertain. But one of the points that Kerner makes, and this is really important, is that does this horror create and authorize the violence or does it actually show us and reflect violence that's already present? At which point we then ask different questions about not that the Saw and Hostel movies, which are his examples, cause violence or cause torture, but rather that the U.S. was torturing and those movies are a reflection of the way in which we make that violence become accepted. And the, the defense of the few bad apples is an important thing to think about, right? That we can then take people as transgressors outside of the law and make it okay to commit violence upon them. So we're actually a part of this cycle of violence and the kind of complicity that comes with it. It just struck me that what you were just saying about complicity in these things, it feels as though, you know, police brutality has been a reality in lots of countries, but maybe particularly the US for years and years and years. But now that we're seeing these videos from the perspective of the policeman's webcam, you're sort of implicated as the viewer in being the perpetrator of the brutality. And I wonder, do you think that that's had a, do you think that is a contributing factor to why these conversations are, are gaining such resonance now? The, the movie Get Out, which came out 
2017 by Jordan Peele that might be an interesting way to talk about the way in which you can disrupt or think about the way in which looking at violence and or experiencing violence through the eyes of someone else. And this could be, was really powerful. And you can, um, I know I often taught it much of this class and I know we, we thank my classes for, you know, I taught a horror class for four years as well, where I used a lot of this thing at an undergrad level, but that gives people the idea of what it might be like to experience life as a, a person of color in America, in which you would be faced as being the problem within a situation that is supposed to be normal but that actually isn't, right? That you know that something's wrong through the whole movie of this building feeling of kind of horror and terror that like he knows something's wrong, but at the same time, here he is at this very nice house with these people who are very nice and voted for Obama. And he has this nice fiance and he doesn't want to cause any trouble. But you can experience the ratcheting up of kind of that feeling of, oh my gosh, something's not right. And in that way, I think viewers who've never experienced that could have a feeling of what that might feel like, which is why we focused on the ethics of it, right? That the, this, if we think about the way in which horror might work, it's also a safe place to feel it. We talked about art house horror. So it's not like you're actually experiencing it, but you would be in a film being able to have a notion of what it might feel like to be in this sense of danger. So perhaps I think we can in that way learn from images that aren't necessarily fictional but a way in which we could understand and experience something we might never get to. And therefore that would change the way we would look at it and the way we would respond to it and the kind of things we would support to fix that problem that we wouldn't have before. I think one of the things that the current moment is showing and the protests and the visibility of violence against African-American people and, and other people of color around the world is, as Steph said, a way of seeing something that we otherwise can't experience and thinking about what the implications are for ourselves and that certain pop culture forms kind of help us bridge those kind of spaces in ways that are more appropriate. But I also think that there's a lot of politics around and I think about it in a different context in my work, which bodies are allowed to be visible in their experiencing of violence, right? So the fact that we see the body cam footage and we see everything up to that moment where news decides that, you know, we can't see the actual moment of death, but we've seen literally everything before that. And in the work that I'm doing where it's okay to show the bodies of children who don't look enough, and I put it in quotes, like us, that they're allowed to be shown in situations of death and suffering in various ways, in ways that we wouldn't show, again, in quotes and all the positionality, our own children right and what are the the kind of racialized implications of the kinds of displays and images of violence that we see you know the new york times had all that outrage about the kenyan hotel shootings and printing images that included images of dead people and rightly pointed out that they wouldn't do that if it was in america so i think that uneven global power flows that are both here and there, but also within our societies. And when we think about the kinds of ways in which we see and engage and understand violence, I think needs more interrogation and, and awareness and self-awareness in kind of how we think about those kind of things. Yeah, another thing to add too might be, it's not as though it's not there for those who don't experience that kind of police violence in America. It's that we maybe don't want to see it. And maybe yeah. the, I don't know how to disrupt that if you're not willing to see or not wanting to see um, is another problem that I don't think that we can really speak on. But I do think that 
for those who genuinely might not have been known that that was a reality for people mm-hmm. because of their privileged position. It's a good way to think about intervening. But at the same time, again, like I think we all probably struggle with the use of these images and what it what they can and can't do and the kind of negative things that they can do as well. It's a knife edge and I'm answering that question is very difficult. I think one of the things that is really important about Steph and Tim's article as well is that it highlights the complicity of pop culture in this kind of violence. So one of the things that's come out of, you know, broader discussions on social media and elsewhere in the last couple of weeks is the overwhelming uh, production of cop TV shows and movies that show the police force, that show uh, militarisation domestically and internationally, and the acceptance of this narrative that generally underpins the majority of these productions, that even if the institution itself is racist, is misogynistic, that there's always a couple of uh, individuals. So it's kind of a neoliberalisation in a way of like the individual is working for the good of the community, you know, against the structures of oppression that their actual job might actually, you know, reaffirm. And I think that is something that we all have to be really aware of and recognize that in consuming these images and these films, these TV shows that, you know, if there's a power there um, in terms of the, I guess, the economic, the political economy of pop culture and the kind of reproduction of this idea that, you know, we should only question policing or militarization in certain ways. And I think this, uh, the last couple of weeks have really shown that. I think a few examples have been, you know, Law and Order SVU with Olivia Benson as being the, you know, a female strong character, which is really fantastic in terms of representation of women on screen. But then there's all these other issues around the, her role in a police force as well in New York and, and all the other issues around that. You know, as Steph pointed out, the issue of torture, as practice becoming normalised through these TV shows, people have talked about that with 24, you know, Homeland, Zero Dark Thirty and things like that. So this, you know, it's about, um, I think, and pop culture is one way in which we, you know, move in and feel our way through, you know, what's actually happening in our everyday life and we kind of question and try and visualise these moments and there's an effective dimension that goes in there too. So it is, it works both ways in that there's, uh, it's a reflection of what's happening in the world but also it's a challenge to it. So it's not always that uh, it's just a replication of these, you know, structures of inequality. There's some challenge there but it also might not necessarily be challenging enough and I think that's something we need to recognise going forward and the last couple of weeks have certainly highlighted how there's a there's layers of complicity in pop culture and the reproduction of film and television origin really does feed into this. Thank you. So can we turn now, Connie, to your article in this section, which is titled Social Media and the Visibility of Horrific Violence? Obviously, it ties into a lot of what we were just saying there. But could you maybe give us a a rundown of what you were exploring in that article? I guess it's more about how these images are communicated in some way. Absolutely. So in in a way, uh, my article links to a certain extent with both Helen's and Steph and Tim's article because it centres itself on the issue of social media and the circulation of violent images and what these images do, what the kind of possibilities that arise from the circulation of violent images. And 
you know, one of the questions I ask is, well, what, what makes this so new? You know, images of violence have been circulated throughout history in different contexts. This is not anything that we're unaware of, you know, in the news media, as Helen has pointed out um, and Steph has pointed out too. It's very clear that images of violent death printed and they're accessible and it's very graphic and explicit imagery is, is widely available. I can think of the Daily Mail, for instance. It's very much utilises images in a particular way quite a lot. But the thing that makes this quite different is that even if, as, as Helen pointed out, even if it goes up to the point of imminent death where it is going to occur, there is a restriction on the kinds of images that can be shown from that point on. But what happens is public-facing social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like Instagram, TikTok and so on actually really uh, provide this massive opportunity to see this kind of extreme violence close up and very quickly when we scroll through Twitter, when we kind of look at Facebook posts and Instagram feeds, for instance, uh, we can, you know, these, these images kind of uh, pop up quite frequently when we're talking about, for instance, graphic imaging in relation to terror attacks. And one of the things around this is that, look, it's, it's complex and contentious because when we're seeing this kind of level of violence, we want to turn away because it's horrific, but also there's, it's really, it's evoking conflict, conflicting feelings, particularly around horror and then empathy anger and anxiety that arises out of seeing this kind of destruction of the human body. And this can also produce really interesting kind of effects because the properties of social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook connected to kind of the emotional responses that arise out of the massive level of circulation that these images enjoy in a way. So it creates this very interesting pressure in terms of the global visibility of the kind of circulation of these violent images and the audience responses to this. And so there's often we might get an outcry, we might get a pressure on the government of whatever state to do something, but it's not really quite clear what they should be doing. And so we're seeing governments respond in particular ways to these spectacles of violence because of this emotional mobilisation of audiences around the horrific images that are circulating. And so they need to respond, but there's not really quite a clear idea about what they should do. So often they will respond with the same kind of policies that don't actually seek to address the, the reasons for the violence occurring in the first place or seek to best mitigate it in future. And, and so this is where we get things become a little bit tricky. And then the other effect of these kind of the circulation of violent images is that governments attempt to claw back some of this control. And so there was some, you know, will often respond with images of their own, which can be successful in the case of the image of uh, Jacinda Ardern following the uh, New Zealand mosque terror attacks, the use of the, the live streaming of that uh, attack in 2019, where 51 people were killed, uh, you know, was really highly circulated initially on Facebook. And then even when that link was disabled, uh, was picked up on Twitter and, and uh, still kind of posted across uh, YouTube as well. And then some of the broadcast media also circulated segments of those images, which were from the kind of shooter viewpoint from when uh, that individual went into the mosque. And so that kind of framed the event and yet 
Jacinda Ardern, the image of her um, hugging mourners outside after visiting a mosque to convey her condolences was so powerful and demonstrated, uh, you know, a political leader who was showing empathy and care and it challenged this narrative around fear and anxiety and anger that was arising as a result of those attacks. So that that is an example of uh, kind of successful challenging inadvertently but nonetheless it was very popular, challenging uh, government using those images to challenge that particular event and create a different narrative. So platforms themselves are implicated in the emotional effective dimensions of these violent images. So it's not just the images themselves, but what's really important to consider is their circulation and how this kind of global visibility of horrific violence has implications for policymaking, both in terms of an attempt of, by governments to address the concerns or the, or the outcry from particular key audiences, but also in terms of the attempt by these political leaders to shift the narrative around certain events to kind of regain control. And this can be successful and it, it can also be really badly done. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's still extremely important to consider. It's not enough to just dismiss Twitter images as aggressive, nonsensical retweeting of things, uh, you know, like certain political leaders we might know. Um, this actually has significant implications for policymaking and we have to pay attention to that. So one of the kind of interesting effects of, of what you're saying that I wanted to pick up on was the fact we're seeing policymakers respond to the public outcry that these images generate and the emotional effects that these images have. I wondered whether as we see more and more sophisticated technology being used to create fake images, whether that is going to be something that policymakers need to pay a lot more attention to, because is there a danger that we're moving into a space where there will be dramatic public calls for action on a particular thing for which there's a precedent of government action, but that the original kind of catalyst for that response is something that is not true. I just wondered whether you had a view on how deep fakes and, and fake images could hijack this policymaker response. Absolutely. I think this is definitely where we're heading. We can already see the effects of digital disinformation and you've had a, a couple of articles in international affairs that have already touched on this, particularly around the downing of the Ukrainian airline or Malaysian airline, sorry, in Ukraine and the effects of digital disinformation on the that process and the kind of fake news or the, the misinformation that pervaded as a result of that. And already you can see that audience responses to images shift the frames through which certain issues, political issues uh, are made relevant or are seen to be important and even shift the debate around who is the potential better candidate, for instance, uh, in the elections. We can think of the videos that circulate of President Trump. You know, that's an example of him really paying attention to how he is perceived visually. We can see that over the last couple of, of weeks. But also, you know, we can think about how he uses images of Joe Biden and the videos of Joe Biden, you know, being interviewed and, and things like that. So Trump will use that to his advantage. So already we can see that videos and images that aren't fake, uh, you know, have a significant impact on people viewing them because they want to use them in a particular way. So it, it makes sense that, you know, deep fakes and manufactured videos are just the next step of this. So I guess one of the things that governments are becoming much more aware of is, uh, apart from this 
this new dis- digital disinformation is definitely they're putting funding, they're thinking about cybersecurity, so they're thinking about uh, how to counter digital disinformation from state and non-state actors, but they need to pay attention to the manufacturing of images because images reflect in some way a truth of a moment, even if that's been disputed. And there's many, many people who've talked about this. It's a history of people who are talking about how images are framed and they don't reflect reality, but they impose a certain view of the world that becomes the representation of that moment in time. It's very easy to see that this is going to cause significant problems. I mean, even in pop culture references, there's that movie Wag the Dog, <laughs> you know, which talks about the kind of manipulation of the domestic public into supporting a fake war for, for whatever reason. And that was like, what, in the 90s, that, that film. So it's, it's not unusual and it's probably been happening for quite some time, but we're just not aware of it. So definitely this is where I think concerns around that policymakers are going to have are, are going to be arising from this issue of the crossover between digital disinformation and fake images. I also think it's good to remember that these kind of problems aren't new problems. It's the problem of knowledge right, and how we understand if what we see is real and how we explain that. Right? We have the parallax problem from the Greeks. You know, if you hold a stick and it's straight and you put it in the water and it's bent, how do you know? So I think that we, we should also be careful of thinking that a new technology is going to either fix that or make it more muddied and that we still have a problem of truthiness, right? That we did with other forms of human intelligence, say, in gathering in which you would find out that there weren't actually weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, for example, yet an entire war was motivated on that truth of that, which later came out wasn't. So I do think it's it's good to know that we have another level of the way in which this works. So we're not going at it um, without any other experience. There's the whole philosophical tradition of how do we know what we know? And I think it's good to remember that as we move into images because of that. Digital images can be, and I think that we already know first person when you a crime is committed and you ask the people who see it, you get a different story from everyone. And in fact, in courts of law, pictures are often not admissible evidence for them being able to be doctored. So I think there's already a big tradition for that. And we can draw upon that as we move into this digital realm. And I hope that that does happen as opposed to treating it as if it's a new phenomenon. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the things that's going to make this more complex is actually the the issue of authenticity that these platforms and the circulation of images actually generate. So it's the idea of, you know, retweeting or liking or when it's coming from a particular handle, it's seen as being more authentic when there's like an emotional response. So I think that, if anything is what's going to be the slightly new dimension. It's not that images haven't been doctored before or that there's not an objective reading of truth that we've, we aren't able to have, but it's that element of the emotional dynamics that connect to that that I think will make it much more complex. An interesting thread that's been common across all three of your conversations has been that there have been different stakeholders at different times almost deciding for us the level of acceptable violence that they can show you. So we had film directors, we were, um, Helen mentioned the newspaper editors covering the Kenyan terror attacks. And you were just talking there, Connie, of course, of, about social media platforms, which are private companies. People are deciding whether or not a specific video or a specific photo is an appropriate thing that they can leave on their platform or that they can take away. I just wondered whether that is something that concerns you guys, I suppose? Like, is, is it strange that we have individuals or individual organisations deciding this for us with no kind of social conversation about what is appropriate levels of violence and what isn't? 
I think one of the things to consider is that the social media platforms that we engage with, so that, which is definitely key stakeholders, particularly when you think of multinational conglomerates or huge, powerful organisations, you know, that, that end up uh, appearing before Congress to answer questions about issues around hate speech and freedom of speech and political meddling and, and all that kind of stuff, is that regardless of whether those images are censored, we see them in some capacity anyway. So, and the other thing is, in fact, that there's less censorship than we might actually think. And one of the issues around horror is our imagination. So sometimes what we don't see, what we expect as the next step or the next image that we might we might actually be confronted with is much more frightening, is much more effectively damaging than the images that we actually do see. And this is where I think it's important to remember that images don't just occur outside of text. So you might have the image of, uh, you know, or a short video of someone who then goes off screen and you have a description of what happens to that person afterwards and you can imagine it. And I think that is something that, you know, they're never going to be able to (laughs) remove. Um, So it's the imagination is a key component of the way in which we engage with images. Yeah, I can talk to that as well. I think you brought up a really important point for the horror genre itself, right? When you use the horror genre, oftentimes the most explicit violence isn't shown, or in fact, sometimes the most scariest horror movies are the ones where um, they're not the extreme body horror, where you'd see the actual rending of the body. But then making the person imagine it is actually worse in some ways, right? Because then that you take the step then into someone's brain and have them imagine what this might be. And I think there maybe are blunt uses of images and that there are maybe ways in which images get used in a more nuanced way for control and for trying to make certain kind of political outcomes based on what they think the affect will be around that image. Um, one of the points that Tim and I make about horror is it brings up the other, the other side of the coin, the order and security side of the coin and the horrors that make them necessary. So oftentimes I think if we talk about an image being in a, in a more theoretical way of an image being productive, it could be productive in many ways and it might not be the kind of productive that we want, but one can see how these images can work in particular ways to make things happen, whether we like that or agree with it. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, particularly around the issue of catharsis as well. Like, so when we're looking, when we're seeing these horrific images or even imagining them, uh, you know, it's a really complex, effective response that people have, which can be dictated by a whole range of things. But this is particularly why, you know, it speaks to the issue of why potentially there's not enough global solidarity to push against certain, you know, policy decisions that restrict the movement of the free movement of people into zones where they can be free of war and poverty and things like that. Because, you know, the the way in which we see images can be different for every person. I think one of the other things to think about that we've kind of talked indirectly about, but maybe not directly, is audience. So, like, who these images are aimed at and for for what purpose. Because I'm thinking about things like, in recent years, right, the use by ISIS of really graphic videos of violence that had particular purposes, beheading videos and other kinds of violence, where they particularly use the nationals of particular countries 
you know, in these really spectacle kind of contexts, right, to make a certain kind of point. And I know yeah. Simone Mollenfries has written about this for international affairs before as well, right, about that kind of violence and who the intended audience of that violence is. But I think one of the, the kind of other elements of ISIS in particular, when it's not, we're talking about terror attacks, but how they also produce videos. I mean, Manny Crone writes about them in the special section, that are recruitment videos, right, where this violence is basically sexy. It's designed to appeal effectively, viscerally, emotionally invoking desire for particularly young men to go and join the fight. And so I think we often talk about this kind of spectacular violence of terrorist attacks mediated through social media or visibility of suffering and death mediated through social media with this kind of implicit assumption that the, the audience is Western policymakers, and sometimes that's true. But I think there's a whole lot of other kinds of registers of violence and visuality that are going on that through that kind of constitute and co-constitute the kinds of practices and politics that are going on in the international space as well. And that's before we even get to, we talk about the, the spectacular and visible before we get to the, the kind of mundane stuff that we don't even think of as violence, right? Poverty and ecological destruction and climate collapse, right? Like these kind of slow things that we don't see, but what is the visuality and violence kind of elements of those and how they play out in our politics as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. That's a really fascinating conversation. The articles that we've discussed are all available on the International Affairs website now in the May 2020 issue under a section titled Violence, Visuality and World Politics. Stephanie Fischel, Constance Duncan, Helen Behrens, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. It's great thank to you. Thanks, Ben. Well, what an interesting discussion. Thanks so much, Ben. Well, before we round up, I suppose we could we could quiz each other, couldn't we? Slightly. Yeah, Test each on. other. What's been your favourite episode of the series so far? Oh, I mean, there's so many to choose from, Agnes. It's been it's been crazy. And also, I mean, it's been interesting increasing our frequency to one a week. So we it yeah. just feels like we've covered so much content in the last couple of months and thank you so much to listeners for sticking with us and listening to everything as much as you have which has has been amazing i think my favorite episode from the season i'm just having a flick back i really enjoyed the interview that we did the joint interview with mohammed nakfi about blasphemy laws in pakistan and Gosh, what yeah. it means but- to make documentaries I think that was probably my favourite episode of the season so far. That just feels like so long ago. I know, um, it was, we were in the studio. <laughs> we were I in can't... the studio. <laughs> wow. Yeah, thanks so much again to this for, for sticking with us as we've gone weekly. I think it's looking like when we come back, we're going to be back to our old schedule of bi-monthly. I never know what bi-monthly means. Fortnightly. Even though fortnightly, fortnightly is easier. I really enjoyed speaking to Yossi Meckelberg about Israel and Netanyahu. Uh, I also thought your interview with Yusuf about race in Westminster was really fascinating. And I really enjoyed uh, speaking to Charlotte Riley about the politics of statues as well. And 100 years, I've uh, loads of them, Ben. Loads of them. Just so many We just love it. <laughs> yeah. And we you know we've tried to cover a lot of different things, haven't we, really? China's response to the coronavirus. Yeah, I don't know. We've, we've done a broad range of stuff, haven't we? But... 
next week it's your birthday ben and it's my birthday and it's your birthday and we're gonna have we're gonna have a bit of time off so i hope everybody else manages to have a bit of a break as well this summer thank you so much for listening as ever (laughs) if you want to get in touch please tweet us at Chatham House, or me at Agnes Frim, or Ben at Ben R. Horton. Send us a message through our Libsyn website as well. And do rate us and subscribe and tell your friends. And if there are any episodes you've missed, now is a good opportunity to catch up. Absolutely. And we will be back in a few weeks, I guess, with some new interviews from our next season. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.